listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today's Global IQ Minute is with Helene Cooper, the Pulitzer Award-winning journalist who is now covering the Pentagon for the New York Times. She joined the Times in 2004 as assistant editorial page editor before becoming diplomatic correspondent in 2006 and White House correspondent in 2009. She's in Dallas tonight to celebrate the recent publication of her new book, Madam President, The Extraordinary Journey of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the President of Liberia. It's great to have you back in Dallas. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. You know, before we discuss the remarkable story of President Sirleaf. I want to talk about another courageous and talented woman, and that's you. Oh, come on. Now, a few years ago, you wrote that book, The House at Sugar Beach, and it was a New York Times bestseller, and even though you went to Duke University. I did not. I, I went to you, Carolina. But you Carol, can't say Duke Car- to somebody who went to Carolina. But I'm a cavalier. Not- Carolina is just as bad. No. But congratulations. No, I'm sorry because we just. But a, congratulations. Won the congratulations. And B, we're not as smug as those horrible Duke people. Oh, it's cavaliers. Oh. But moving on. <laughs> so how you're in, UVA. I didn't realize yeah. that. How in the heck did you get there? Tell um, us about your family. My family moved to the States in 1980, right after there was a military coup in Liberia, and members of my friend, family had been targeted, and I had cousins who were killed, and we ran away and moved here as refugees. Mm-hmm. My mom and my sister and I, and then my father, who had been shot during the coup, followed after he had recovered from his wounds. And we moved to North Carolina because that was where my father had gone to college himself, and he sort of knew North Carolina, and that's where I ended up finishing high school and then going on to the University of North Carolina, not Duke, <laughs> at Chapel Hill, and going into journalism. So that's sort of how I started out here in the U.S. at least. And I do have to say, I read your book a few years ago. When did it come out? It came the, out in 2008. That's right. The House at Sugar Beach. Apparently, I take 10 years per book. <laughs> so. Well, a lot, a lot of historians <laughs> do that, that's for sure. You know, when I read this, it was really interesting because you realize that the shade of one's skin color has made a difference in so much in history. And when you talk about how Liberia developed, there's this differentiation between the Congo people. And I wonder if you might explain to our listeners what Congo people means. Sure. Liberia has a really interesting history in that it was founded by freed American slaves and freed blacks. These guys boarded ships and moved to Liberia starting in 1821. And most of the freed blacks and freed slaves on these ships were mixed race. They were sort of the mixed race children of white slave owners who had had children with their slaves and wanted to get these kids off of the plantation, you know, because they were sort of a kind of testament to their infidelity in front of the wives. And so these children moved to Liberia and founded this country, but they took with them the same sort of antebellum notions that they had fled from in the American South, except now, because they had a lighter skin color, they considered themselves to be superior to the native Liberians who were there. And that's why this whole question of skin color is so endemic, it's so important to all of the racial problems that Liberia has had since then, where you had these two classes and this two-class structure in this country where the people who were lighter skin, who look sort of like American blacks today look, because they've been mixed with whites Mm -hmm. here, were considered the upper class, and native Africans were considered the lower class. And that, a lot of that, a lot of the turmoil around that is what led to the military coup. And they were called the the country people. They were called the, yes, the native Liberians were called the country people. It was a derogatory term. The descendants of the freed slaves were called the Congo people, and that's a really complicated story. 
Britain had just abolished the slave trade on the high seas. And because all of these slaving ships were entering, most of them were entering the Atlantic from the mouth of the Congo River, British warships would board these slaving vessels as they were headed to the US or headed to the Caribbean. And they would turn them around and make them go back to either Sierra Leone, where Freetown, which is why mm -hmm. Freetown is called Freetown, because they would free the slaves there, or Liberia. And these freed slaves were newcomers and the native Liberians, because all these slave ships were coming from the mouth of the Congo River, just called all newcomers. Congo people, whether they were freed slaves from America or freed slaves who had only recently been freed because they had been captured or recaptured and liberated by British warships. Now people are going to have to read your book to understand how Ellen got to Harvard, but how how did the civil rights movement influence her philosophy and influence her later in life? It's really weird because she was a member of the sort of elite part of Liberian society, even though she was not Congo, but that's a complicated story we won't go into right now. But she got to the United States just as the civil rights movement was kicking off. And as this happens to so many of the Liberian Congo people, you know, they're very elite in Liberia and they get to the U.S. and then they're confronted with black versus white race and they immediately take, you know, they immediately gravitate to the black. And she did the same thing. And that's what caused her to start questioning a lot of the assumptions that she had grown up with in Liberia. Now, she was the first woman to be president in Africa. And there's just remarkable stories that you talk about in the book about how women really propelled her and made it possible for her to win, especially in the runoff. Now, some of the things they did, I mean, in my be a little election fraudish or not. You but know, you Americans are just <laughs> fixated on that part of the book. But, but tell um, people about these voter ID cards. I will, but before I do that, in these women's defense, you have to understand what they had just come out of. They had come out of 14 years of horrific civil war where 70% of the women in Liberia were raped. Children were stolen from their mothers and turned into child soldiers. It was the worst thing you can possibly imagine. And after 14 years of this, which these women blamed on the men, because these women were, con they were the market women who throughout the war, what little economy there was in the country was being operated by these women. They were going through rebel lines, collecting oranges and plowing the fields and taking their wares back to the city and feeding the country. And they were so sick of what had just happened, they determined that only a woman would make sure that nothing like this had happened again. So, you know, a little voter fraud. Okay, well, you're coming, yeah. I, need to, I need to paint that whole picture. But I'll buy you a beer first. if you give me your card. I buy, or... I'll buy you a beer if you give me your voter card. A lot of, this was a choice, the election came down to a choice between Ellen Johnson's relief at the time, a 67-year-old Harvard-educated global financier versus a 30-year-old football player, professional football player with not a real college degree or any kind of experience behind him, but two very good goals when he was playing for AC Milan. He was African player of the century. He was FIFA World Player of the Year. George Weah was a phenomenal football player, but he was a football player. And this is a country that's 4.7 billion in debt, having come out of 15 years of civil war. And these women are looking at their young sons, all of whom are saying, we're voting for the football player. And they're like, no, you're not. You're not giving our country, you're not gonna throw our country away like this. And so there were moms who stole their son's voter ID cards. There were women went into bars and bribed the guys and said, I'll give you 10 bucks. You Any idea what the ID impact card. of that was? I don't think it was a huge impact. Yeah. I just love it's the just a great story because it's, it shows just how sort of the depths these women were willing to go to. And you know, you talked about the enormous debt and that's another chapter that I really loved about I how loved Bono and that. Soros yeah, and yeah, George W. Bush yeah. were all involved in helping her 
basically erase that debt. So it was a phenomenal undertaking because Liberia, four point seven billion. I mean, the debt to the income ratio in Liberia was just out of control. Yeah. I mean, the country didn't qualify for any kind of IMF or World Bank loans. It was so far out of the you know, out of the norm of what could be borrowed that couldn't qualify for anything. And it took a lot for Ellen. Only somebody with her background in monetary policy could have done what she did in Liberia in getting that debt. Now, there are elections them. next year? This year. This year. Yeah. Okay. And she's and, stepping down. And who is? Uh, uh, well, the football player that's is running what I thought, again. Yeah. All of the usual male characters are is running Is he the again. favorite? Or what I don't, We don't know yet, because we don't do the kind of incessant polling that y'all do for two years before your elections. One other question, because you are covering the Pentagon and you just left the White House. What's it like covering the Trump administration in 30 seconds? Covering the Trump administration from the Pentagon is like covering the sanest part of the government. You know, it's run by Jim Mattis, who everybody loves. The military rank and file love him. The civilians love him. Trump inexplicably loves him and pretty much does what Mattis tells him. So if you just look at security policy, you feel like things are going to be OK if you're at the Pentagon. It's as soon as you leave that five-sided that five building and look across the Potomac that things in Washington but, look pretty wild But right you now. wrote a piece in the York Times yesterday, which sort of indicated there's still a lot of confusion. So you have a lot to cover. There's a lot going on. Well, I want to thank you for writing, Madam President. It really is an extraordinary book. Congratulations. And uh, we'll beat you next year. No, you won't. When was the last time Virginia beat Carolina? We're out of time. <laughs> thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>